Welcome to Vicious Talk with Benny P, episode 54 here. Sorry, 53 on the docket here with my good friend, uh, a Holy Cross graduate, class of 2014. He's a political science major, political science and government major from Holy Cross, a four-year member of the Holy Cross Division I varsity baseball team, a former sales manager for the, the, the Tacoma Rainiers, a AAA organization affiliate of the Seattle Mariners. He's currently working as a sales manager at In Motion Systems, the company known for their hit tracks technology. My good friend from Holy Cross, Andrew Barry. Welcome to the, welcome to the uh, podcast, A.B. What's happening, Benny? I'm really uh, I'm putting that poli sci uh, degree to use, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, your your major in college was baseball, was it not? <laughs> yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. You know, thank you for having me. I'm uh, I'm pumped to be on here. I'm excited to uh, to join the convo. We look sounds like we got some good Northwest stuff happening, some baseball stuff happening. So I'm excited. Yeah, dude. And I was excited to uh, bring you on because again, I, I talk about this a lot when I bring on old friends. One of the best p- parts about having this podcast is being able to catch up with old friends like yourself and you, you and I haven't really had too much time to catch up since kind of Holy Cross and um, wanted to bring you on to kind of talk about some of the interesting perspectives that you've developed over since graduating from Holy Cross. You and I, you always treated me well, Holy Cross. You were a little older than me and uh, you, you treated me well on the baseball team. I thought you were, you were always one of the guys that was really just welcoming it and I really appreciated that. And so that's why I was, I was happy to try to reach out to you and try to bring you on to, to the Vicious Talk podcast. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was Holy Cross was a blast. That whole team environment was a blast, you know, playing, playing baseball and, and just spending every day together. And dude, you were, uh, you were a grinder. I just love the fact that you, you just wanted to be a part of the group and figure out a way that you could fit in and help people. And you just loved baseball and, and, and the whole concept of being part of the team, mm-hmm. you found a way to, to, to stick around. And I respected that a lot. That's awesome. And it shows, you know, here you are here. Now you've got your own podcast. No surprise. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude, that was, that was me my whole life. I mean, baseball has just been such a big part of my life and I really wanted to uh, look at, I'm looking forward to talking a little ball with you here on the podcast today, but um, to kick off here, let's start with our first topic. Cause I wanted to, just kind of give some background on how you and I know each other. So we go back to Holy Cross. You, like I said, you were a four-year member of the Holy Cross baseball team. Let me ask you this. Like, what was your first initial draw to Holy Cross? Because you came all the way from the Pacific Northwest. I mean, similarly, I was way out on the West Coast in Los Angeles, went all the way to Worcester, Massachusetts, you know, to play. You played, I know you were a recruit there, right? And, but you went to go play ball at Holy Cross. And I mean, I I went out there for school and I mean, it's, it's both of us kind of having some sort of weird connection. I mean, going yeah. all the way from the west coast to the east coast it, it really just a, a lot when people ask me like why'd you do that i mean that's like the most common question i get all the time so let me ask you that why'd you go from seattle washington all the way to worcester massachusetts <laughs> to play at holy cross the good old woo dude i love it um no it's i mean you're right i went out there for baseball it's it's also a good academic school um i think you know, I, I saw yesterday on college baseball hub or something, they, they put this out like every six months, but that map of, uh, NCAA schools, right. D one, D two, D three. Sometimes they put up the NAI and stuff. And you, if you look over here on the West coast, more so in the Northwest, there are, you know, you find five D one schools. You got UW, Washington state, Oregon, Oregon state, Gonzaga, all elite, all elite too. powerhouses. And yeah. I mean, I was a good player, but I wasn't no D one, you know, top level big five conference guy. I, I, I thought I was, or I wished I was, but then you look at the East coast and there are so many schools out there and so many great educational schools too. Um, you know, I was recruited, 
really my junior year with uh, one of the coaches that was at Northwestern and I was psyched to go to Northwestern. <laughs> and then he called me one week and was like, Hey, you know, it's, it's such and such from Holy cross. And I was like, what the heck is Holy cross? <laughs> I was like, I don't want to go there. Like, what are you talking about? But no, so that's how I ended up doing it. And I loved it. It was a blast. Mm. I mean, it was a great, great community, great area. Um, you know, Worcester in general is a different experience, the East coast in general, you know, going from, from out here where things are a little bit more low key. So, I mean, I really enjoyed my time out there. Yeah. I have a similar, similar take as well. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't recruited to Holy Cross as a baseball player, but I was, I was looking at like Boston college and Northeastern uh, out of the Boston area. And cause my mom's from that new England area. And so she, she grew up in Rhode Island and I uh, spent a lot of time. We went on a few family vacations out on the East coast. And I just knew I liked the Boston area. I was intrigued about trying to possibly attend college out in, in Boston. And my high school, like college counselor was like, well, you should take a look at this school. And I was like, what the fuck is Holy Cross? Like, <laughs> was like what is this? You know? And um, it sounded like a religious school. I was like, I don't know. I, I went to a Jesuit high school. I was like, you know, it's cool to be Jesuit, but it's like, you know, I was kind of like looking forward to just, you know, enjoying some sort of other educational path, but you, Holy Cross was a surprisingly great fit. And it sounds like you had a similar story. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I enjoyed it. They, uh, yeah, they, like I said, I was a poli sci major, which, you know, it is what it is. I kind of, I, I've always kind of interested in the politics or dynamics of it, I guess, but, um, you know, and what you learn there, you don't necessarily need to, I mean, I'm not doing lobbying or running for Congress or anything, but you learn skills and you move yeah. on. And that's, you know, that's kind of how it took me here. Dude, the, the educational aspect of Holy Cross was rigorous, man. I remember like someone talking to me about how like we were ranked more difficult than like Harvard or something like that. And I was just like, do I believe it? Like I, I was like an A student in high school and then at Holy Cross, I was far from it. And you don't get any personal tutors. Yeah. So, but the, the good thing with, with that kind of a smaller classroom program is you, you have an opportunity to speak one-on-one -on -one to your professors a decent amount, but I mean, it's really up to the student to kind of take advantage of those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. It was that they actually know who you are, you know? Yeah. I, I like that aspect of it for sure. Um, let me ask you this. So you spent four years on the, at the Holy Cross, uh, on the Holy Cross baseball team. Mm -hmm. but what was your favorite part about being a student athlete there? Like, what did you, what was your favorite part about being a part of a division one baseball program, but also kind of enjoying, uh, like, like we both have said, a, 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 a rewarding academic experience as well. Um, my favorite part, I don't, I, you know, you look back and like, I don't remember games. I don't remember <laughs> specific events, like, uh, like, except yeah. for maybe some of the playoff stuff, but yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just outside of that. What you remember is just the camaraderie of everybody. Yeah. And you're literally just like a family. Like you just, everybody knows each other. Everybody likes each other aside from occasional riff that people get over, <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you win together, you lose together. And like, dude, I just, I love that. I miss, that's one of the biggest things I miss from not being on the field as opposed to being off the field. Like I am now, you know, just being with the crew and, and going to the weight yeah. room and workouts at 6am. Like, I just love that bond <laughs> that you develop, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I literally thought that was exactly where you're going to go with that because I have, <laughs> I have a similar thought with, baseball you know i mean i didn't i didn't play as long as you were able to but just like that's my thing i miss most about being involved with the sport just like you're so dead on with that the camaraderie and the experiences you have with your teammates i mean because for me growing up i was i don't know about you i was crazy competitive like i used to get mm -hmm. really really mad when i when i didn't when i didn't play well or our team didn't play well like i took it so seriously and 
when I look back on it, it's kind of funny because like, you know, I mean, while I think it's important to really care and be passionate about what you're doing, I think like sometimes when you have such a narrow focus, when you're playing, you don't appreciate that enough. You know, I really like miss, that's the thing I miss most. Like you said, like the camaraderie and being part of a team and the, the early practices and the late practices and just the extra work in the batting cage and like those kinds of things. And when you're bonding with your teammates and your coaches, like those are the experiences that you truly remember. You don't remember that you went two for three on some sort of Sunday night game, you know? So I thought that was, I mean, I have the exact same. I thought I do remember process. that I hit a home run my first at bat against LSU, though. I won't forget that one. <laughs> uh, I, I, dude, I would never even. I would. I don't blame you for that one, man. All right, let me ask you this: I, I, Are you? Do you have the Holy Cross record for the most sacrifice bunts? <laughs> I have not checked within the last couple of years. They didn't play this year. Um, but I, as of a couple of years ago, yes, I'm the all time leader in sacrifice bunts. And I think unless that one was also broken sacrifice flies. So I'm the <laughs> ultimate teammate. And I, I drop that line all the time and people love it. Yeah, dude, that's I'm awesome. a, I'm a sacrifice King, man. That's just what I am. Dude. That's a dude. You had a great mentality on the game. Um, when you played, you, I, you clearly had such a great grasp of winning baseball and what it took to win the games. And I thought whenever there was like a, uh, some sort of, laps in, in our, in the team's judgment or like the team's performance where they were struggling or there was some sort of need for just like someone to be consistent and, and come up with a big hit or a clutch hit. I felt like you were always that guy when I, at least when I was around there, I felt like you were always the guy that the team kind of looked to, to, to lead them to kind of bring them out of any sort of funk or any sort of leadership role. What you didn't see is my freshman and sophomore year. I was so fucking bad that <laughs> coach D would have me sacrifice bunt with one out and a runner on first. And I would get so pissed. I would well, take the first well, one every time. And you know, like you, yeah. you missed that part of it. <laughs> well, credit to you for kind of getting out of that role and earning the respect of the team and the coaches. True. True. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny though. Yeah, dude. And you played a solid second base. So that was always your backbone there. I love defense. Defense was always yeah. my, yeah, I, I love defense so much. Hitting's great. It's hard as hell, especially if you, if you look nowadays, like the, what guys are doing, it's nasty pitches. Like, I don't know if I could keep yeah. up at this level, but I love defense. Yeah. I agree with you there. I mean, I, I, growing up, I was always a really good defensive catcher. And then that felt when I got to college, that felt like it was my weakest part of my game. And that was what really felt like it was holding me back from getting to be able to play at the higher level. Because I mean, I felt like I was always confident at the plate as a hitter. And then I, when I had, in, I had some injuries in high school and then that kind of affected my physical abilities. I felt like, and then I felt, I felt like I fell behind, behind the play as a catcher. And, um, that, that I, I was, I was like a little jealous and like, I, I not jealous, but like, you know, I, I wanted to emulate how I was, I was impressed with the way that division one athletes at Holy Cross would play def defense for baseball, you know, cause that was some of the better, de some of the better defensive players I ever saw. Like, I mean, you and Maldonado and Mike Ahmed, like, dude, you guys, but pick, straight pick it. And I was, it was impressive. I mean, Lovey was a good in his own right too. Nick Lovello. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some really good defensive players. I remember came through that, that program. Dude, we had some good guys. Yeah. Couple dudes, Lovey, and I think I don't know what Ahmed's up to. Both those guys ended up playing pro ball, Maldo too. Yeah, there was there was some good players that went through there. Certainly. I yeah, I, I think that we, we can both uh, attest to kind of just the benefit of, you know, we, we really appreciated the, uh, the, the playing aspect of it. And um, I wanted to ask you about 
the the part of being a college athlete and then you spent four years working your ass off to be the best baseball player you can and then unfortunately you, you weren't able to move on and play at a higher level after college and mm-hmm. so I wanted to ask you that you you're one of millions I'm sure of college athletes who spent their whole you know youth working their asses off to get to perfect their craft in whatever sport they're playing in. And then you, you graduate college and now you're looking at what am I going to do next? And so I wanted to transition to trying to ask you. So after you spent four years at Holy Cross, what was your thought process? And when you, after you graduated, what'd you want to do and what, what, how did you use your, your collegiate athletic play, your baseball play to fuel your success going forward? Dude, I had no clue what I wanted to do. No idea. Yeah, no, I, does. no, I always thought like when, was, as soon as I was done playing, I was going to be a coach. That's what I thought. And I was like, all right, as soon as I'm done, I'll just be a coach. I uh, should be able to be a D one coach pretty easily. You know, I always kind of enjoyed that leadership role and I think that'd be awesome to do. And then you kind of sit back and look at what you have to do. And it's like, all right, you got to go be a grad assistant for a year. <laughs> then you got to go be a volunteer it's assistant. A long, it's a long trail. Then you got to move from state to state and you're probably going to get fired if the team sucks. Like, so I had, um, when I, 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 you know, I kind of realized my time playing was done and personally I was exhausted and, and I was okay with that. So I was kind of ready to, to take a step and move on and I had a connection at Holy Cross, um, a dude that, that used to uh, be buddies with some of the guys on the baseball team at the Tacoma Rainiers, triple um, A team for the Mariners. So I'm like, okay, all right, maybe I can, you know, get into the business side of sports. So I decided really that was the only job offer I got. The only one I really sucked, you know, um, was seeking out and ended up, ended up getting it. And so I went straight from graduating on Friday or Saturday, whatever it was to working, uh, on Monday in Tacoma the following week. Yeah, no, straight up. Yeah. I went for a visit on Monday and started working on Tuesday. Um, and it was sales. It's, and I didn't, I didn't even know what the job was to be honest with you. (laughs) I I, like, I showed up and I was like, so what exactly am am I going to be doing? (laughs) (laughs) And so they're like, all right, well, you you know, you got to start cold calling. I had to pick up the phone and and Mm. rip these cold calls, you know, which is kind of where the, poli sci thing comes into play a little bit because in those classes, especially Holy Cross, it's more seminar based. So you're having discussions. Um, and I started on that front and, and I enjoyed the baseball side of things or the business side of baseball. I should say it was, you know, you're still around the game. I went to a triple a stadium for work every day. That's where our, that's where our offices were. Um, and you quickly learn that, you don't have anything to do with what's on the field. When you, when you go into that side, what you're worried about, unless you're in the player development side of things, you're just trying to make money for the company, you know? So that was a big shift, but I, uh, that's kind of what got me into it. And, and, and I enjoyed it. I I, I love my time with the Rainiers. Yeah, dude. I actually had a very similar experience. I went to uh, work with the Arizona Coyotes. Um, I know we mentioned, I mentioned in our earlier conversation, but um, moved out to Arizona to work for the Coyotes and I was making cold calls as well. uh, Mm -hmm. Working in their sales department there and dude it's a grind it's not for everybody and you know like you said being there's a specific personality and skill set that kind of benefits the most from that and while i was i was i wasn't a bad i wasn't bad at it by any means like i was one of the leaders in our in our sales group but 
it's, it's not easy. And it's a grind. Like there's some days that you feel like you're, you're like, you're doing really well and you're, you make a good sale and you feel good about yourself and you go home happy. But then the other days are like, you string together two or three days. It's like nothing. And you get, you get some people that like curse you out on the phone or something. Is, is, is that not like, hey, there was one dude, there was one time I called somebody like on my first week and I didn't know the situation. I was, I was literally ripping through an old Excel spreadsheet and I called this dude. I'd, I'd been calling him for months. Um, so it was actually a little bit into, into my time at the Rainiers, but I've been calling him every day, uh, president of this lumber company. Finally, he answers the phone and I'm jacked. I'm like, Mac, what's going on? It's Andrew with the Rainiers. Like, I'm excited. I just want to take a few minutes to sit down to chat with you about what we have going on. It's a business across the street. I'm like, this is an easy meeting. And the guy just goes, Andrew, I am pissed because the Rainiers renovated their stadium and didn't, didn't use him as a contractor. They used somebody, oh some, some national company. Yeah. So I walked into this situation and the guy tells me straight up, he's like, I'm not going to be burdened by the gates of Cheney stadium, blah, blah, blah. Like, don't ever call me again. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, all right, man. Like, I'm sorry. Have a good one. I'll catch you later. <laughs> that happens, dude. That totally <laughs> happens. I could think of at least a couple examples like that myself. I remember I talked to this one old man, dude, I talked to him for like a good hour, hour and a half. And you know, my bosses probably wouldn't have been happy with me that I talked about him because he, he was, he was like living in San Jose and I was talking about Arizona Coyotes tickets, but the dude wouldn't let me hang up the phone, dude. He just like, he just loved to chat with me. And you know, like I didn't hate it. I was like, all right, you want to talk sports with me, man? I'm happy to talk, but you know, it's like, sometimes you get these calls and it's like the guy's just like it's pissy you call them and and then like you said where you call them like you call them every day for like a month or a couple uh-huh. of weeks and then they finally pick up and they're like why have you been calling me and leave me all these messages it's harassment it's like dude just like relax like i'm just trying to help you out like get you some but, tickets like it's good i think i really think that kind of experience is good and it helps you develop because i was always you know in general and when in public with people that I don't know, I was, I've kind of typically been reserved, but putting yourself in that situation where you have to be out there and you have to, you know, cheese up your personality a little bit and, and, and figure ways to, to get people to talk to you. I think everybody could benefit from that experience. Even if you figure out it's not what you want to do, you know, you you talk about people always saying you have to work in customer service. You have to work in customer service, do something like that. Something that's going to get you out of your shell. And and I think starting out with something right out of college and in that realm, that's going to get you out of your comfort zone really benefits you. It's you're building the skill set that you can't really learn aside from doing you know, the job and, and actually running into those situations. So I'm, I'm happy about it. I loved it. Totally. Yeah. And to kind of bring it full circle, I think that, um, the ability to be a, a, a successful in sports sales, it, it, it really is conducive to people who have a personality where they just like speaking with someone with the genuine intent of trying to just better the, the other person on the other line, like trying to help them out. And I think that your personality just from the baseball field and just as a friend really exudes that kind of, you know, just a uh, trait and that, and that personality trait. And I think that um, it, it it's good when you have that as a salesperson, but then there's also these people at sales that just like work their asses off and then they're not, they're kind of nerdy and like, they don't really, you know, they're not really super social, but then they kill it in sales. And so the numbers game sometimes yeah, it, it is, it's different for everybody. And I think that 
Um, what's really key in that industry is um, when you talked about how you had a contact from Holy Cross. And I think that it's really key is you got to network in that, in that industry. Like I know you got, you got really fortunate with you were able to find a, a good spot for you with the vineyards pretty quickly. But sometimes it's like, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't as quickly. It, like it didn't happen as fast. Like I went to a number of different sports conferences. Like I was going, I went to um, a sports conference in San Diego. I went to one at Fenway. I went to one at um, a couple of different places. And then finally I went to one at the Arizona Coyotes arena and I met the guy that ended up hiring me for the Coyotes. And so it's just different for everybody. And I think that really just putting yourself out there and having good conversations with everybody that you come in contact with um, professionally and personally, you know, is just key for anybody to try to find some sort of success out, out of college. And um, especially for student athletes who don't really have the experience and background resume to maybe earn a job that they're really striving for um, the personality traits and the conversations that they have with people are, are the most important aspect, you know, Dude, it's everything. Yeah. It's, it really is. It really is. I, my, my resume, well, you, you kind of talked about earlier, you know, when you play baseball, especially at Holy Cross, you know, we, I was forced to go to not forced, but forced to go to these summer collegiate leagues instead of going to do an internship. Right. So your, your resume is lacking, like on my resume for my first job was, uh, Holy cross and, and previous job experience was working, working at a Christmas tree farm for a couple of winters, seriously, honey tree Christmas farms. It's a great business, but that was my resume. And you know, it's, yeah, but the, the, the contact I had, I talked to him over the course of six months. And oh, wow. as I was okay. about to graduate, I finally hit him up and I was like, yo, I'm like, so I think I want to come work for the Rainiers. Is that option still open? And he's like, yeah, let's do it. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's definitely about networking and, and, you know, building the relationships. That's, that's the name of the game, yeah. no matter, how, no matter what you're in, in industry. Yeah. How far away from Tacoma are you where you were, where you were living originally? Uh, about 10, 15 minutes. Oh, little, so you're real close. Yeah. Okay. That worked out perfectly. That was, it was a dream. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So then talk to me about what, what, um, brought you to in motion and, and working with at hit tracks and, and what was your, uh, what was the process of kind of that transition? Yeah. So in motion systems is the company that made hit tracks, hit tracks. Okay. the the baseball simulation and, and data capture device, just like golf simulators, you know, you're, you're tracking ball flight. Um, you're getting, you know, high level metrics, exit velocity, launch angle, distance, things like that. Um, but so I was with the Rainiers and, um, one of our buddies, Bobby Pease, uh, was working for the, uh, working for hit tracks over in Boston. And I'd always kind of joked about him throughout the course of the year, uh, course of the years, just, you know, you guys ever need a West coast guy, just, you know, let me know. You want a West coast guy? Like hit me up. And he called me one day and he said, Hey, you know, we, we actually might be looking at it cause they, you know, we do onsite installations a lot. So they have constantly were flying from Massachusetts over to California, you know, Washington, Oregon, Texas. Um, and they didn't want to do that. So, um, I did a demo of the product uh, with Bobby and just saw it. And I'm like, Holy shit, dude, this thing is ridiculous. <laughs> like at that point I was not in tune with, with analytics and, and they've been doing it for a while before that, yeah. but you know, highly accurate information that's, that's captured really at the MLB level. Now you have this tool that, you know, players can hit at any MLB ballpark and it changes the size of the stadium. And, and you're able to deliver that to amateur athletes, kids all the way from eight years old up to now, you know, 
pretty much every professional team has one of these in their organization. Um, so it was an easy decision. As soon as the option came up, I was like, all right, I can, you know, I'm going to be able to work from home and, uh, and travel around the country a little bit. And now in this role, I'm somewhat more on the field. I'm still doing sales yeah. and I'm still responsible for, you know, revenue every year. But now I'm also training coaches on how to use this device and, you know, use the, use the, uh, the feedback to train these athletes and it's fun for the kids too. So they love it. So I, I, it was, it was an easy call. As soon as I got the offer, I was like, yep, yeah. this is, this is the next step. Yeah. And the company's grown a lot since then. So I'm, I'm extremely happy with the decision. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said as well. I mean, the hit tracks, like it technology sells itself. And so when you're, when you're a salesperson, it's almost like, I mean, I'm not saying that the Rainiers are a bad product, but I mean, it's, is it not a lot easier to sell something that's so like, you like it's unique and it's awesome. And it's just a great, it's a great technology tool, you know, tit tracks and Rainier tickets are great, you know, but I mean, not everybody wants to go see a Rainier's game that you're calling. And I'm sure that the pe- a lot more that uh, the people you're in contact with are more interested in something that's as unique and, and neat as hit tracks, right? Dude, calling the, the president of some insurance company, trying to get them interested in AAA, you know, <laughs> season tickets for, you know, $5,000 a year. Yeah. It was a, it, like, it was a grind, yeah. you know, and then, yeah, the Rainiers do have free beer. So it was a little bit easier <laughs> to sell, but still, absolutely. Like it was, I, I was excited to be in the door with those guys. And now at this point, it's such, it is such a cool product. Um, people are excited to talk to us about it and, and that, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm passionate about it too. So it, it is by far an easier sell uh, than triple A tickets yeah. without a doubt. <laughs> yeah, it makes it easier on you and your, and your emotional state too. Cause people aren't like yelling at you. Like, I don't, this Hitrax is like, it sucks. Like you're not getting that, you know? So um, no, no, there's a fair amount of tech support still, but um, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's people love it. So uh, cool. definitely, definitely a much more calming. And, and uh, I think, you know, impactful experience. You feel like you're really giving back to, to the game and then helping it progress. Very cool. And the, the region, so you talked about how they expanded up to the Pacific Northwest. That's a really growing baseball region, is it not? I mean, they have dry line baseball up there. Um, a lot of pros are starting to go up there to train. Am I wrong in that? I mean, there's a lot of baseball is really growing up there, right? Oh, yeah, it's huge. Driveline has been a big part of that. They're, you know, just south of Seattle. There's, you know, Axpad, which is a, uh, they've been around for a little bit, but I'd say they're still up and coming. Uh, bat company with, with a, you know, more of a scientific-based bat handle kind of changing the game in that sense. Um, Driveline really has been ripping it. They've been a customer since, I don't know, before I started 2014, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you're right. They have, they've always had pro pitchers, Trevor Bauer, Cy Young winner, uh, was there for quite a few years. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the angels are going up there now too. Uh, like I think I heard Shohei Otani was up there. Nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of your boys. So, um, no, they're growing. Yeah. It's the Northwest is, you know, to be honest with you, I think it's a great spot and, and sports and tech and everything is kind of developing up here. Well, I mean, there's also a, maybe a more of a conducive market for a technology like this, where you could hit indoors and see where you're hitting the ball out in a real ballpark because it rains so much there and the weather is not so great for youth ball players. And so they have to have, I mean, we had this in Massachusetts with Holy cross, you got a lot of indoor practices. And so the need for technology like this is probably a little bit, a little bit higher in regions where it's raining a lot and the weather's not great for outdoor play. Right. And especially right now during, you know, COVID, 
a lot of these facilities and gyms and everything have these strict um, capacity limits. So what you can actually do on the hit tracks is, is you, you can actually now play a game. So we could actually have four players go in and play a two on two game, like a nine inning game where our defense simulates double plays. And um, we've actually run legit tournaments off of that because you mm-hmm. can now play games online. So we just finished up a minor league tournament for uh, all minor league baseball players could enter and they competed to see how many runs they could score in a qualifier. If they qualified, we put them into this single elimination. Uh, what was it? It was, it was, I think it was a 60, no, it was, it was a 32 player bracket, single limb. You know, you got guys from New York playing guys from Cali working all the way down to uh, a three game championship series where the winner <laughs> took home $10,000. So was, it, what was the reaction to this? It sounds really cool. It was awesome. The feedback we got was awesome. The players loved it because they, their seasons just got canceled. Um, Guys walked away with legitimate money and we did the same thing for fast pitch. Um, And the viewership we got was awesome because we live streamed all this stuff on, on YouTube and we've got a modest social media following. So the people we sent it out to, we got, you know, I would say for the fast pitch was probably more popular because we had legit players, the top players in the world really. Um, And we ended up getting on, on one of our live streams, you know, two, 300 people on, uh, which is pretty sweet. So actually, if you go to our YouTube and check it out there, some of those games are, are recorded and you can see them, but it, it's almost well, kind of well, like well, a someone new search. Well, it's someone search in YouTube just for listeners. Uh, it's hit it. tracks official H I T T R A X official. Okay. So if you check it out, there's a lot of games on there. It's, it's awesome. It's, it's like I said, it's almost like we're creating a new sport. So I'm, I'm super passionate about that. Yeah. And, and you and I talked about this a little bit um, in our earlier conversation as well. The, the kind of mer- emergence of both esports and baseball and like in a real sport like baseball is, I mean, esports is really growing in its own right. Video games are really big right now, especially with the pandemic and people having to stay indoors more. Um, but esports kind of crossing with baseball is really neat uh, aspect of this hit tracks technology. And it, is that something you guys kind of um, talk about when you're, when you're oh, yeah. kind of, yeah. Dude, we play right into that kids right now. If you talk to them about playing online, like dude, they did their eyes just light up and they get so yeah. pumped up. Anything online, like right now I'm playing Fall Guys on PS4, like and it's addictive just because every <laughs> single person you're playing is online. Fortnite, same concept. So that kind of idea is really, really addictive and and contagious and and kids play and they have this great experience and the word spreads. So I, I really think that side of things is gonna be huge down the road. And even if you look at like the NBA, they have the you know, the NBA 2K league. So that, that kind of stuff is, is huge. And I, I truly see that being a big part of the future, no matter what happens. What are the price ranges of that, of the hit track technology? Uh, it's, it's, uh, is it more a, for like a, like a larger company or like a, someone who like a ball, like a professional ball player? It could be, it could be the, the cost of a decent car if you get the full meal deal. Um, <laughs> but we actually, uh, we just came out with a home product that was, uh, that's about half the cost, about $10,000 and, and you, know, you get the full package. So if you got a, a cage in the garage or the basement or something, um, you can put it in there and, and, you know, we have a ton of people taking advantage of that. And, you know, with COVID they're able to go get hacks and, and see the whole ball flight onto uh, a legit, you know, MLB field based on the size of, of their age, you know, 12 U player really can cool. be in Fenway park where center field's 220 feet. Yeah. So that's really cool. What, what's the, uh, are you, are you, are you cool with saying what, have you worked with anybody that like is notable? Like, have you really, have you been able to like kind of fanboy out on anybody you've talking to through your job? <laughs> Yeah. Some of them are, uh, a little bit more discreet than others. Um, of course, obviously one, uh, so one of the guys that's been 
just a huge supporter of us and his, his kids too. Uh, so I did an install for Roger Clemens, um, earlier yeah, this cool. year. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, went to the, uh, went to the, what is it? The, the rocket house, I believe is what he calls it. <laughs> That's funny. He <laughs> um, would, dude, he would call his own house, the rocket house. That's he's funny. got a I have that. I should have worn the hat. He has a sick hat that he got me. Um, but his kids, Casey and Cody, um, they are, uh, they're still playing, uh, his older son is coaching with the system. So that was pretty cool to go down there and meet with uh, a dude that, uh, probably should be in the hall of fame right now, but yeah. I think we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about this. So, so we, uh, wanted to talk a little bit about, cause it's a baseball off season. So we were limited in a little bit of what we could talk about here. Not too much free. There was a little bit of free agent, uh, stuff going on right now in the MLB, but not too much exciting stuff, a little bit of a drab free agent market, really not too many big names out there. Um, outside of the obvious, like Trevor Bauer, George Springer and such. But, um, one thing going on in baseball is, um, the hall of fame stuff going on. We have a hall of fame debates. Everybody's kind of got their own personal brackets a little bit and, uh, talking about kind of who they would personally vote into the hall of fame. Uh, even though nobody who we talked to is like, Oh, I actually have a vote, but everybody's got an opinion. So let me ask you, have you, have you got a chance to kind of look at who's on the ballot this year? Who, who are you thinking about should make it this year and per, your personal favorites? Well, it's always a contentious topic, but I've taken a peek through. Um, I think I want, I want to hear your take on, on this. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to flip it around. I'm going to ask you a question first. Okay. Is there somebody on here right now? That's a no brainer that should be in there without question. Well, I mean, no, but if you, if you, um, the easy answer to that is no, but if you, for me personally, it's a yes, because I've, I don't see how any of these guys can get in unless you vote bonds and Clemens in. And I, I know it's a huge debate about the steroids and, you know, whether or not, I mean, um, bonds and Clemens never actually individually tested positive for anything specifically. Um, but we all know there's a lot of suspicion with that. And in, in all likelihood, they had some sort of help with, with PEDs. But for me personally, like, I, I feel like Barry Bonds is the best hitter I've ever seen in a major league baseball game. Like I've never seen someone hit the ball as well as Barry Bonds did. And for me, like if he's not in the hall of fame, I don't understand how you could call it a hall of fame because he's personally, like I've lived 26 years now and he's no doubt the best hitter I've ever seen. And I think Mike Trout's the best player all around I've ever seen. I think Barry Bonds is easily, had the best swing and the best approach and the best, you know, mechanics at the plate and, and the strength and just the combination of everything that he put together at the plate. I think it's just, I don't understand how you can have a hall of fame without a guy like that. What, like, what is baseball supposed to do? Are they supposed to just say that from 1995 <laughs> to 2015, just things didn't happen? Like, yeah. like we didn't have, you know, some of the best players to ever play the game. Yes. These guys clearly did some steroids. If you look at the size of Barry Bonds head, that's all you need. You don't <laughs> need a positive test. Yeah. You don't need that. But that said, if you don't have the all-time MLB home runs leader, 
in the in the Hall of Fame. I completely agree with you. It's not the Hall of Fame. I am so pissed that Barry Bonds is the home run leader, and I am dying for somebody to break it. <laughs> I, you know, it, it's it it kills me. But you have to have him in. How do you not have Roger Clemens in the Hall of Fame when the guy had a career three ERA, three one two yeah. ERA, forty six hundred strikeouts, and almost five thousand innings yeah. pitched? I like, consider him maybe one of the best five pitchers I've ever seen. I, I think like Pedro and Randy Martinez, maybe. I mean, Randy Johnson, right? Pedro Martinez and Randy Johnson might be up there. But Clemens was incredible, man. He was awesome. He was nasty and he did it for two decades. And he threw, uh, he's the only pitcher to have um, two 20 strikeout games. Like, and, and, and that's, that is the other thing is you can't just put in. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Yeah, one of the that best opens hitters up the floodgates. But you can't just put them in and ignore the rest. You can't just say, okay, those two will get in, but yeah. the rest, no. Like you, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, because I mean, it's so it's so hypocritical the way that this is how this has all been done. Because I mean, they've already get they've already let in Pudge Rodriguez, who had some sort of similar suspicions about PEDs. Um, I, I really don't think Ken Griffey Jr. Um, did anything, obviously, but um, he had some. Plot, some Easy possible now. suspicions. I, I love Easy my, now. Favorite, my favorite player <laughs> of all time, really Ken Griffey Jr. But you know, he played in that same era as well, but he, he broke down when he got older as well. Uh, Mike Piazza guy that got in already. He, he was, there was some suspicion about him. I mean, David Ortiz is probably going to get in at some point. I mean, there was some suspicion. He was on that Mitchell report back in the early two thousands. Um, for me, really, I mean, you, what's hard. So if I, I bonds and Clemens are two guys that I got to vote in if I have a personal ballot, but then if I vote them in, like you said, it opens up the door for guys like Manny Ramirez, who is obviously a hall of fame talent. Um, I mean, I really feel like Sammy Sosa was a hall of famer when I watched him play, but you know, those guys, those guys don't get votes. And so we're looking at these early trends. Manny's at 50% in their first, their early trends. I mean, they've only got 5% of the ballots about in so far, but I mean, Manny's training about 50%, which will probably go down. So says about 25%. I mean, those guys aren't going to get in. And I mean, Manny got, Manny got the positive test. So that's really his biggest knock about the whole argument thing, but it's just, I, I don't know. It's, it's so inconsistent in the way that it's been done. It's just like the hall of fame, you, baseball hall of fame used to be the, the ultimate hall of fame in all of sports. Really. I mean, there's, you don't really hear as much talk about the basketball and the football hall of fame until like it's the day of a day of inauguration or like the announcement of the voting, mm-hmm. you know, and for baseball, there's this whole buildup in this debate of, you know, who gets in, who gets that ultimate glory and, and acknowledgement and recognition for their play. And it's fun because in baseball, you have all these stats that you can look back on. You have things that you can measure people on and there's no sport that counts more things than, than baseball. And so you have, you have an opportunity not only to look back at your personal experiences and how you and how you saw these players, but also you can look back at, Oh man, Barry Bonds hit this, how many home runs and had this ab batting average on this year. Like that's crazy. Like you, you look at the seasons of these hall of famers and you look at like a, a bundle of two or three seasons. And it's just like, wow. Like, man, if a guy did that today, they would be, you know, MVP and they would be, you know, one of the, the, the player that everybody's talking about. And they do this over the course of 10 to 20 years. Whereas, you know, in the NFL, you can, you can have five to 10 years of dominance and potentially get in the NBA. Every single person is going to get in the hall of fame. If you're a, a starter at some point, uh, they're, they're yeah, they extremely they, liberal. Yeah, they, they're very lenient with the, how their voting process. They let everybody in. Yeah. And so I, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, again, 
I, I absolutely hate that Barry Bonds has the most home runs of all time, but he has the most home runs of all time and yeah. he deserves to be in have the Hall been, of Fame. Have you ever been to Cooperstown? Nope. Never been. Really, I've been there once. I was, I think I was a teenager, uh, maybe right before high school or just early, my early years of high school. And uh, Bonds was the home run king then when I visited and they have, they have him named once in the hall. And it's just a list of all time homers and the fans all scratch out his name with like some sort of like, you know, they, they scratch it. Like, so they try to knock out his name. It's sad, but you know, it's, it, you cheat and you're going to, people don't like it. You know, they don't want you to, they don't, they think that you didn't earn it. And you know, Bonds was people always talk about this argument with him is him and Clemens were probably hall of famers before they took these PEDs. And so that's probably true, but you know, we'll never know. You'll never know. He's got to be in. Sosa's got to be in. I think Ramirez eventually, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I love Danny. I love Danny. He's a beast. And I I really think these guys will, I think they will. I think, I think the baseball writers will come around because you can't just have two decades where, you know, you just ignore statistics from players with that may have had some suspicion. Now on the other side though, if you look at the, the first ballot guys, aside from maybe, Tory Hunter. I'm looking at this list and it's, it's, um, yeah. some Zito, fantastic Zito players and Hudson but, were good players, but you know, they're not, they didn't have a hall of fame career. They had their, they had moments, but they were not, you know, hall of fame caliber. It's an underwhelming list on the first ballot this year for sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that if I had about, I mean, I'm, I'm more of a guy that wants to vote 10 guys. If I had a vote, you know, 10 is the max. I would almost every year try to get 10 guys just because I, I'm such a baseball fan that there's always 10 guys on these ballots that I just loved watching. And I thought they were always like some of the best players that I ever saw. And so, yeah, maybe they're not hall of famers quite, but like guys like Todd Helton was like, he was iconic for the Colorado Rockies. And he was just, he was the face of that franchise and had such great moments there that I would maybe vote him in. Uh, Jeff Kent was the, maybe the best hitting second baseman that I ever saw. That guy had mm-hmm. some power. That was not something you see at a second base position. Andy Pettit had some of the best playoff performances that you ever see. Um, Scott Rowland was an incredible defender, good hitter. Uh, he was, he was, I mean, if you look at the third base position, he's maybe in the top 10 all time at third base and it's a great position third base, but Brian Kennedy, Brian Kennedy on the MLB network talks about rolling all the time. He really wants to get him into the hall and he has the, Brian Kennedy has a really compelling argument for him. And I think Roland is someone that gets a little bit overlooked sometimes on, on this ballot. And I think he's going to hover around that, that 50% area or so, but dude, I look at Scott Roland. I'm just like, he just seems like a normal dude. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I'm like, I get he was, out of here. Yeah, he was he was just <laughs> consistent for a long time. You know, he was never something his peak, I would say, wasn't Hall of Fame-esque, but the consistency year in and year out and the way that he played defensive uh defensively at third base was I mean, that was that was his his bread and butter there. How about Viscal? That dude was nasty, nasty, nasty yeah. in the field. And the, the, the hot, the really the, what I got out of his scale too. I mean, obviously I, I didn't catch his, his early years. He was a little bit earlier than when I started to seriously follow baseball. His prime years were a little bit earlier than, than when I started to really like digest a lot of baseball, but Vizquel was like such a hot dog at short, but you know, he was good at it. Like he didn't make a lot of errors, but he would like have that thing where he would like knock the ball into his hand and like, you know, kind of deflection. Like, yeah. And, and I remember I went to an angels game when he was a coach for the blue Jays and he just goes out to catch the bullpen. Cause the catcher had just got out hitting and he goes out with no mask on. He just got the glove. He's just squatting right there, dude. He's just, he still got it. He's, he was such an amazing defensive player. But yeah, the offensive numbers are what people really knock him on. But I mean, adequate, 
adequate at the plate. Never, never really known as a good hitter, but he was all right. And I think you're, I think you're right. I think he can sneak in there at some point, possibly. Um, and then Kurt Schilling is someone who I think should get in, but I, I don't like him. <laughs> so he's I, like, I, yeah, it's kind of an asshole. So I think that he really hurts he him. Just, he, he just needs to get off Twitter and maybe he'll get in. Right. So, I mean, nobody wants to, nobody wants to vote for him, but the people that do just kind of do it through their gritting their teeth, you know, <laughs> they're, they're like, ah, you are good. You're a good player. Like we, whenever you watch Kurt Schilling pitch, I mean, the iconic bloody sock game and the bloody sock game does it for me. I mean, in that uh, sense, I could vote for him, but yeah, I would, I would begrudgingly begrudgingly is the right word there, but it's an exciting, it's an exciting time every year to kind of discuss the hall of fame ballot. And while this year is a, is a little bit underwhelming, we would both probably agree to. Um, I just think that the, the focus really needs to start being Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. I think they have what, two or three years left. And the thought process of uh, you hear from like Ken Rosenthal and stuff is they kind of suggest that a decent amount of the writers are starting, are just trying to make them sweat it out until their last year. And I hope that's the case. I mean, it, I mean, if they get in, in their last year of eligibility in retrospect, it'll end up being kind of, I feel like right because you know, they did, they did cheat in a sense, but you, if they get in on their last year, this to make them kind of nervous and they had to earn it, you know, that's I think fair, but really, I just think it's like, like we said, criminal if they don't, if they don't make it into hall of fame, as long as I, they get in, I'm fine with that move. I'm yeah, fine with it. Exactly. Um, one guy that has been in the news for negative reasons over the next couple of years. I know we're, we're really just not wanting to talk about this, you're but bring this down. you're going to bring this up. The reason why it kind of transitions is, I mean, this guy is a hall of famer. I mean, if, if, if the off field stuff didn't really kind of bring it coming into light with him, um, if he, someone that we're, we're both really big fans of and you more so than anybody I've ever met, I've ever met uh, Robinson Cano recently tested positive a second Robbie. time for performance enhancing drugs. And the reason why it kind of transitions here is, I mean, he was really destined and, and bound for the hall of fame, really just one of the, one of, if not the sweetest swings any of us have ever seen the, the numbers he put up with the Yankees and, and, and somewhat with the Mariners and the Mets, he had a great year last year, you know, and really just seemed destined for Cooperstown and the two, the two positive tests. Now it's just really kind of knocks out his candidacy. And it's just, it's such a shame. Uh, wanted to bring you on to, to ask like, what what was your grieving process here with the second positive test? Like, what was your mind thought, your mind process, dude? When Robbie went to the Mariners, I was so happy. I thought we were going to win the World Series every year. He was just an <laughs> absolute stud. Did like you said, just the most beautiful swing in the game. Um, I mean, aside from Ken Griffey Jr., yeah, you know, two Mariners, yeah, exactly. Right there, you go. <laughs> but the first positive test. I was, I was devastated and I didn't believe it. I was like, all right, there's some BS going on because the fact is with, with some of these players, um, there are some, some questionable positive tests, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it could be where, where, uh, there was a pitcher last year recently. I forget, I forget his name. Um, but I follow him on Instagram now and he got slapped with an 80 game, uh, suspension because he had one like microgram of some derivative of a substance in his body that potentially could, could naturally occur, or it could be, you know, very, very slightly inside a protein shake or something that is approved by the MLB. Um, so when that first test happened for Robbie, I was like, okay, this sucks. 
and I'm going to wait to hear what he says. And he came out with a statement, which was all right. I mean, he, he said what the, the Dominican doctor, you know, injected him with something that he wasn't aware of, which you, I mean, you know, what goes in your body. You're not going to let a doctor just shoot you up with stuff. Um, there's a tainted meat argument too. But so I gave, <laughs> I, I gave him the pass. I was like, all right, dude, I, I love this man. I'm going to, I trust him. Um, I'm rolling with my guy. Like I, and I, I vouch for him publicly. And then we got the hammer. What about a month ago now? Yeah. And you see, he's gone silent. You don't hear a statement from him. And this time, you know, he didn't test positive for a masking agent. It was, it was, uh, what was it? Stendasol or Stanislaw or whatever. Yeah. Like it's legit steroids. Like yeah. Robinson Cano did steroids for a, a long period of yeah. time. Very, very clearly. Yeah. Um, and you know it kind of makes sense too because he's had some groin injuries and like hamstring injuries and he's getting up there in age and last season he had i think a groin injury and he was playing really well last year he was one of the mets best hitters and he came back after um his injury and he he hit the ground rolling like he he kept it going he he was playing really well and it makes a little sense that like well maybe he had some help and it's it's oh man it's just such heartbreaking i'm devastated i i you know I, he was one of my favorite players. He was my favorite player before him was Albert Pujols. So my money is on Albert. He said one time on sports illustrated that the kids can trust in him because he would never do steroids. So I put all my money on that now. And yeah, it was, it's heartbreaking about Robbie, but I mean, Pujols, if you look at that dude, he had a 10 year period where he batted 300, hit 30 home runs and had a hundred RBIs every and year the, and on, for 10 years straight. And on the yeah. 11th year, he batted 299 with 37 home runs and 99 RBI. So we almost <laughs> did it for 11 years. So I, I, my grieving with Robbie, I'm just, I'm back on pools. I'm all <laughs> we need pools to get those home run numbers up. I think this is, yeah, this is his last season with the halos. So we need like a 30 home run performance out of him. I think he, he's at six, he's at like at six seventy or six sixty something. He's up he, there. Yeah. I want I want to see him get, get to 700. Dude, he's got to get to 700. I, he's not going to retire if, yeah. if, he, if it doesn't get there. It's because he's not going to get signed. Yeah, and it's, dude, it's like it's it's another guy who's not easy to watch nowadays. I mean, as an Angels fan, I watch more more Pujols than I'm proud of. And it's just not the same. And I think the defensive shifts, the the trend and the upwards trends of the excessive de- defensive shifts in baseball really just derailed his career. He just can't run anymore. And so the defensive shift, I mean, the shortstop could play shallow left field and the third baseman can play like down the line. And it's like the dude can't beat anything out. He can't. No, so. he can't. I, yeah, it's, but that's how, that's what mother nature does, or I guess father right? time does. Father time breaks you down unless you're doing steroids. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I mean, it makes it, it, that's how a guy's supposed to age. So it feels the, the thought that, yeah, he, he wasn't, he wasn't somebody that was uh, on the steroid bandwagon, but yeah, someone that is just super likable and hopefully he continues to finish his career with grace. My money's on pools. <laughs> I'm sorry about your canoe, man. I'm sorry. It's just, it's so heartbreaking. Um, before we dive into our, our last segment, wanted to touch a little bit about, so you're from Seattle. There's mm-hmm. a, a lot of Seattle sports talk been going on. The Seahawks are right now the hot topic in Seattle. Are you, uh, are you optimistic about their Super Bowl chances right now? They're about plus 900 in the gambling books to win the Super Bowl, about plus 350, plus 400 to win the NFC championship to make it to the Super Bowl. And then Russell Wilson is the runner up right now to Mahomes in the MVP voting. He's about plus 500. 
to plus 700 to win it up to win the MVP award. So how optimistic are you about your Seahawks this year? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm optimistic that uh, they're going to make the playoffs. They will make the playoffs and their schedule is so easy wrapping up that if they can find a way to just do the job and, and somehow beat the Rams who, you know, kicked their ass last time, they're probably going to have a, a one or two seed potentially, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Packers and the saints have uh, both a couple tough mat, tough matchups uh, at the end of uh, uh, the year. But yeah. the so, Seahawks have a cake. I think next three weeks, like giants, jets and Redskins or the Washington football team. I think Giants, that's what it is. Jets football team. Yes. Um, so they will make the playoffs. They will be a high seed. I do believe they're going to beat out the Rams in that sense, but um, I don't know, man, there's so many good teams. The saints are so good. The Packers are so good. Even if the Seahawks, I think they probably have a great chance to win the NFC to, to go in and, 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 and win the Super Bowl against the chiefs. Dude, yeah. I mean Pat Mahomes. There's a reason he's the he's the the the, the MVP frontrunner, and the re, there's a reason Russell Wilson has never won an MVP because he has to go up against guys like this every year. Yeah, yeah, I know, dude. It's it's crazy. Russell Wilson feels like he's been around the league a while, and he just hasn't been able to. He's always second best or like third best on these MVP voting. You know, he's always there. He's an elite quarterback, but there's these guys like Aaron Rodgers, Pat Mahomes, Tom Brady at times. These guys are just they're they put together these peak seasons, these elite seasons that are just historically excellent, you know? And I think it's going to happen again. I think Pat Mahomes is going to, he has two interceptions right now. Russell has 10. They have about the same, you know, touchdowns, but I think it's going to happen again. I think Pat Mahomes is going to win the MVP. And And, and the Seahawks are kind of running the ball a little bit more now too. They're they're not relying as much as the, on the air attack as they were early on in the season. Yeah. So, I mean, Russell's not going to have, he might have nearly as many TDs as Mahomes, but he still has the 10 interceptions. So, you know, I, 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 the Seahawks, I'm pumped and I'm going to watch every game, but I don't think they're going to win the Super Bowl, to be honest with you. They're, they're, you could you could at least say that the Seahawks are a part of a group of maybe six teams, seven teams tops that have a chance to win the Super Bowl this year. Um, I mean, you could even narrow it down a little bit further than that if you really wanted to. Who's but your favorite? Is, obviously, the Chiefs. Um, but I really like I like the Chiefs and the Steelers a lot. But I mean, out of the NFC, it's a coin flip really for me between the the Saints, the Packers, the Seahawks, and the Rams. I think those four teams are all really really good, um, and and really. The Rams have the be- I think the best all around team in the in the NFC except for Jared Goff and Jared Goff is going to get them as far as he could go if he doesn't if Jared Goff doesn't get in their own in his own way the Rams are going to be really good but you know I, I have no faith in Goff at all so you have a you have a much bigger advantage for the Seahawks with Russell Wilson in there and then the Seahawks on defense are getting better week by week I mean Jamal Adams has been incredible he's a beast season. yeah he's awesome he's a beast yeah. Dude, Russell is my guy. I love Russell. I take him over any QB any day. I love the talk about how earlier earlier in the season how he was like, yeah, dude, I spent like one and a half million dollars on just like keeping my body right and, <laughs> and making sure I'm ready to play every week for the NFL. It's like, dude, that guy is dedicated, dedicated to his craft. And it's, He's a freak. He's yeah. a freak. And he goes, he's still every Tuesday, he goes to Seattle Children's Hospital and spends time with the kids. That, that's yeah. not a joke. Dude, that's who he is. Yeah. Dude, that was a, that was a, when I was looking up trivia for our vicious minute segment at the end. I was, that was one thing that they were saying about Russell Wilson. He was like, yeah, he visits the children's hospital every Tuesday. <laughs> every Tuesday, doesn't miss it. Yeah, that's awesome. He's a great person. He's a great face of the NFL. He's just really a guy that you want to you want to root for. You know, someone that is is fun to root for. 
I could um, do without his advertisements, but <laughs> <laughs> he's so nerdy. He's like, so he's like such a nerd, you know, the way he talks and like the way he just kind of, he's just too nice. You know, he's just so such a good guy that it's like, sometimes like I want an edge to my guy. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. You can't, you can't be the, the CFO of Alaska airlines, the chief football officer and do those commercials and be, you know, some badass dude. <laughs> what was the story you were telling me about that? His trainer was like waking him up every oh. hour. Dude, so he had a, a high ankle sprain. I think it was two years ago, something like that. And um, he's, I mean, the guy's a freak. So he had, you know, they had they have all this science and sports medicine is taken to another level now. So it was trying to, to really determine, you know, what's the best and quickest way to recover. How do I need to to be ready to play next week um, with a, a an injury that people would normally sit out for three weeks with? So Russell had uh, a a trainer live with him. And I believe it was every 40 minutes or every hour, they would wake him up in his sleep for ankle mobility (laughs) and he'd go back to sleep and wake up. And this trainer, I wonder how much like that expedited his recovery process. He played that next week and he got sacked a lot. And I don't think he did that great, but he played the dude yeah. doesn't miss games. And and to that level, that's what you have to do to be one of the all time greats, like Brady, the TB 12 method, which is just insane. Mm-hmm. Like that's what it takes now. That's what, this is what these, these guys do. Yeah. It's crazy how far athletic sports medicine has come. You know, these guys just really understand to the T like everything that needs, they need to do to their bodies and put in their bodies to, like perform at their peak levels and stay healthy and stay durable because it's a science now. And then guys are perfecting it. It's crazy. Like LeBron James spending about, I think him and Russell had like what, two or three cryo chambers and spend like all this millions of dollars on their health and wellness every year. It's crazy. Um, Another Seattle sport topic the Mariners were kind of a, a fun team this last year, to be honest. I, mean, I know they didn't have that much success, um, but really Kyle Seeger had a great season at third base for them. And Kyle, Kyle Lewis, or no, yeah, Kyle, Kyle Seeger was great at third base. And Kyle Lewis, the center fielder rookie, won the Rookie of the Year award. I know they got hurt at the end of the year, but are you excited for uh, possibly a bright future Mariners squad centered around Kyle Lewis and the, the young kid coming up soon, Kalenic? You think? Are you optimistic about the Mariners' chances for their future? Uh, the short answer is yes, but it's not a short answer only because it's been since 2001. We went from winning 116 games, the most tied for the most all time with the 1908 Cubs, to not making the playoffs. And here we are, and it's 2020, and we still haven't made the playoffs. And it's taken Jerry Depoto, who when he came in. Um, he, you know, he, he, he inherited the Robbie Cano contract and he went out and got Nelson Cruz or maybe, maybe it was Jack Z that got Nelson Cruz, but he brought in these other guys and kind of built a team that had a window to win a world series and it didn't happen. And what they're doing now is the right thing to do tear the team down and build it up from the draft. That's exactly what the Astros did. Right. And, and you look at them now sign stealing and all they have these homegrown athletes that are dominating. And Kyle Lewis is a stud. Kalenic is a stud that they got. I mean, that was via trade, but still, I mean, you, you look at the guys that are pulling up. Um, I forget the name of the shortstop, but he's, uh, he's filthy as well. JP Crawford or JP Crawford. JP Crawford is nasty with the glove. He had, you know, plenty of top 10 plays last year. So mm-hmm. yes, I'm excited about the future. You know, you got justice Sheffield on the bump and yeah. I don't know, dude. I'm tired, I'm tired of, of these Astros and A's get them, get them the hell out of here. You know, give me, give me some more Mariners angels rivalries. <laughs> 
dude, straight up fuck the Astros. <laughs> yeah, dude, nobody wants them to do well. Yeah, the Astros are just not. I mean, I was, I was initially. It's crazy because when the Astros were in the NL Central and they came over to AOS, it was exciting because you're like, oh, we get another shitty team in our division, you know, easy win. And then sure enough, like three or four years later, they're the best team in the American in the uh, Major League Baseball. It's crazy. You remember Nate Walker at Holy yeah. Cross? Yeah, he called it. We were we were in our dorm room in 2014 when the Astros were, you know, 40 games below 500 or something. He goes, um, the Astros are winning the World Series in, in 2017. I swear to God, he said that. And he, <laughs> no he, he, the dude knew the farm systems for all these teams. He studied it. He works you know, in baseball now, obviously. And and he called it. And that's that's what they need to do. So they're doing that's the awesome. right thing. You, you got to tear it down. You got to start back up. <laughs> So we'll see. It's just depressing. 20, you know, two, two decades without a playoff visit is, is tough to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Their win total uh, over under win total right now, early on looking towards the 2021 season at, at a, at a quick guess, would you say take the over or under on 63 and a half wins for the Mariners next year? I take the over. I think they'll get 70. I, I tend to agree with you there. I think 63 and a half is pretty low. I don't think they're that bad. Um, one other Seattle sports team going on right now, the Seattle Kraken coming to an NHL team coming to Seattle. Are you excited for some hockey up, up in the Pacific Northwest? Bro, all you need to do is look at the hat. <laughs> look at the hat. Nice. I'm pumped. I'm so did, pumped. Did you follow hockey before you went to Holy Cross? Uh, yeah, my first hockey game was Bruins Rangers at the TD Garden. Nice. And I loved it. <laughs> um, and I wasn't a hockey guy until I went to Holy Cross. The, oh, the, oh, okay. The yeah. Okay. I'm the same as you. I fucking hated hockey. Excuse the language. I hated hockey <laughs> until I went to Holy Cross. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, the, the Massachusetts like culture kind of turned me on to it. I mean, it's such a, it's such a bigger deal. And I remember when I went to, Holy cross. All our friends like in my dorm were like, dude, let's play some chill. Let's play chill. And I was like, what the fuck is chill? Like, <laughs> what is that? Like, I never played that. And then they're like playing this hockey game. And I was like, oh man, you guys love hockey. And it's like, oh, it's a great sport. I, I didn't start to really like it until I started going to the games at Holy cross. It's really cool to see in person. It's, it's an awesome sport. College hockey is awesome, dude. Yeah. I love Holy Cross games. I love the NHL. I was a huge fan of the Golden Knights last year. And I'm hoping with the with the same draft yeah. rules, the Kraken are gonna come up and have a nasty team and get a yeah. chance to win a cup the first year. So I think next <laughs> next, next year's our first year. Yeah. So I'm I'm psyched for it. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people up there really starting to are before the teams even started, just starting to support it. They're excited for it. Because I have yeah. a buddy, I have a buddy from work, I have a friend from work who's from the Pacific Northwest as well. And he's all excited for it too. All right. That's going to wrap it up here for our topics. Um, I really enjoyed that Barry Um, wanted to, before we wrap it up though, let's talk, let's talk about um, our last segment. So we, I've I've been bringing on guests, um, new guests. And and we talked about this before we hopped on here. Um, My my new guests, you kind of just kind of get a little bit more out of them. Um, The idea of this last segment call I'm calling the vicious minute is it's not necessarily a minute, but what we're going to do is 10 trivia questions based on topics that you're that are, are involved with your life. And, and some of them are going to be really difficult. Some of them are going to be tough. Uh, we'll see how you do. Like I said, um, the, the lowest score I've gotten so far is two out of 10, the highest score being six out of 10. So I like your chance. I think we're, we'll, we have an opportunity for a high score here with Andrew Barry coming on uh, the vicious, uh, the vicious minute here. Um, and then at the end of the podcast, what we'll do is if you have a, a, a passionate topic that you want to discuss for a minute or two, uh, we can have you kind of share your thoughts on, on whatever it is that you're, you're passionate about and what you're interested in. 
Um, but let's let's talk about some some things that you're familiar with in your life. All right. Let it rip. Question number one in the vicious minute. Going back to the golden days of the Seattle Mariners, if you could call them golden days, in 2001, the Mariners signed a young phenom out of Japan named Ichiro Suzuki, who led the team along with Brett Boone, Mike Cameron, John Olerud, Edgar Martinez, Freddie Garcia, and others, to a record-breaking amount of wins that season. Ichiro went on to win both the AL MVP and the AL Rookie of the Year awards that season. He became one of only three players now to accomplish that feat to win both the MVP and the rookie of the year before Ichiro did it in 2001, who was the last player before him to win both the MVP and rookie of the year awards in the same season? I can give you four. I'm going to give you four answers, four options. Okay. Okay. Number one, Albert Pujols. Number two, B, Fred Lynn. C, Nomar Garcia Parra or D, Jackie Robinson. Uh, before you even gave me those options, I was going to say Albert Pools because he was a rookie the same year as Ichiro, I believe. I don't, I just don't remember if he won the MVP, but I do think maybe Pools was a year before Ichiro. I'm going Pools. It was either Pools or Nomar, but I'm going Pools. Ah, <laughs> uh, Pools won the rookie of the year. He did not win the MVP. I think he came in like third. That same oh. year as Ichiro. Yeah, so Albert Pools, he won the rookie of the year in 2001, but he, he I think he came in third or third or. He was up there in the MVP board. He didn't get it. The, the answer was Fred Lynn. Fred Lynn in ni- 1975, I believe it was. Fred Lynn won the Rookie of the Year in the MVP award. And then Jackie Robinson's the only other one to do it back in like 1940s. All right, we're all for one. All right, I like your chances on this one. I think this is a cupcake question. I didn't realize how cupcake of, a, of it was until we started getting going in our conversation. But all right, so going back to that 2001 Mariners season, to this day, the Mariners, they, they hold the team record for the most wins in a re- regular 162-game season. How many games did they win that year? 116, and they should have won 117, but they blew the last game, and they <laughs> lost a 12-run lead to the Indians earlier that year. So it was 116 games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, a cupcake of a question, but we got you on the board. We're, we're one for two here. Uh, great. I mean, you're the diehard Mariners fan. I don't know how I was going to sneak that one by you. Um, but yeah, one for two here. Right, let's, let's just move forward here to the third question. One of my favorite players of all time, possibly my favorite player of all time, Ken Griffey Jr. He was a bona fide superstar in his heyday. He was obviously my favorite player growing up. He bought a lot. He brought a lot of style and flair to, to the game on and off the field. And off the field, he was one of the first MLB stars to start earning cameos in various TV shows and movies. He appeared on all but one of the following television shows and films. Which one did Griffey not make a cameo on out of these options? A. Martin B. The Simpsons C. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or D. Little Big League Which one did Griffey not make a cameo in? Which one was he not in? If you need me to read them again, let me know. What was what was C? C is The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I don't ever remember a mate on that. <laughs> He was. He was on oh. Fresh Prince. Yeah. He makes oh. the answer was Martin. He was never on Martin with Martin Lawrence. Yeah, oh. he was on a Fresh Prince of Bel Air. And you know, I remember the scene because it was at like the Will was at the uh like the the state he was at the, some sort of fair. It was like a fair and they had a game where you had to throw and knock the bottles down. And Griffey comes up behind him, he's like, Let, it's my turn. It's like, let me go. And then Griffey just whoo, whoo, he knocks them all down. He just got he just throws off the arm. And yeah, Griffey, he had like a five minute little scene there and he was on the Fresh Prince. Damn, I can't believe I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, so you'll see. Some of these are easier, some of these are tough. So we're one for three now. 
All right. Next question, number four. So this is one's for the Seattle Seahawks. So the Beast Quake is perhaps the most exciting and famous play in the Seattle in Seattle Seahawks history. A 67-yard touchdown run from Marshawn Lynch, Lynch that ultimately provided the winning margin in the Hawks 41 to 36 win over the New Orleans Saints. The 12th man, Seattle's lo- Seattle's loud fan base cheered so loud they famously caused a nearby Pacific Northwest Seismic Network station to register a small tremor. Lynch broke a lot of tackles on this run. How many different New Orleans Saints players at least touched beast mode on this play? How many New Orleans Saints players at least touched Marshawn Lynch during this run? So A, seven, B, eight, C, nine, or D, 10. I watch this run. I, I search it on YouTube and I watch it every three months or so just to get pumped <laughs> up. Um, I had to make this question real tough because I knew that was going to be the case. I knew you, I know you watch this play a lot and this, I, is, I, this is a really, this is really tough. And I had to watch this play three, three or four times today to count this number. So it's seven, seven through 10 verbatim. I could, I could do the announcers call on this. Um, it's, it's, uh, you're right. It's a minimum of seven. Um, I think he started out with, he, he broke the tackle up the middle. There's probably three guys that touched him. <laughs> another, maybe, maybe, uh, another broken tackle on his legs, another broken tackle on his legs. That's five. He had the massive stiff arm on the corner. Um, so you're talking, you're talking, you're talking six and then I think it might be seven. I think it's seven because then he cuts the corner and he goes around to the left and he might've got touched one more time on that when Hasselback had the block in the back that he didn't need to do. I think it's seven. Uh, you're dude, you missed the last couple. There was two like no. within the 10 yard line, one like right at the goal line that touched him. He broke a tackle there and then he cut back to the middle around the 10 yard line or so. But you were dead on the first like oh, seven. You man. got them all dead right. It was nine. The answer nine. was C nine. Dude, wow. you were you were like <laughs> I was like, I watched this play like at like a couple hours ago. I was like, dude, you're right on. Like the, 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 the three broken tackles at the beginning, and then two more and a guy dove and missed them. And then Matt Hasselbeck with like the kind of block in the back. Dude, you were uh, I was so impressed. I feel like you got half a point on that one. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take the half a point. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, question number five. The Seattle Seahawks drafted Russell Wilson in the third round of the 2012 draft with the 75th pick overall. How many quarterbacks were drafted ahead of Wilson in the 2012 draft? Bonus if you could answer, if you can name three of them. So it's A5, B6, C7, or D8. If you could, if you could give me the right number and then if you can name three of them, I'll give you a bonus. A5, B6, C7, or D8? Um, I'm going to say, boy, I'm going to say six quarterbacks ahead of him. Um, And I may not get that right, so I'm going to name off three or at least try to to get my other half a point. Uh, I believe that was with, I believe it was the same class as Andrew Luck, Cam Newton, was Ryan Tannehill ahead of him? Uh, You're going. Newton. Newton is not one of them. You Newton got two. Not Andrew Luck. Who was the other freaking dude? Andrew Luck, Ryan Tannehill, and 
I don't know. I'm screwed. <laughs> I'm lost. Dude, you confused RG3 with, with Cam That's Newton. That's who it is. RG3, come on. <laughs> it was five quarterbacks. It was five quarterbacks. And you, dude, you were so, another question. You were so close, dude. So close. I told you, some of these are tough. So it's Andrew Luck, RG3. Those are the first two picks overall in the draft. Tannehill was eight. Brandon Wheaton was 22 and Brock Osweiler was 57. Get out of here. <laughs> Dude, I can't believe, I mean, Tannehill and, and RG3, uh, sure enough. I mean, you can't draft those guys over Russell Wilson, but I mean, Wheaton and Osweiler are straight up embarrassing. The Broncos could have drafted five <laughs> quarterbacks alone ahead of them and they still wouldn't have had one this weekend to play. <laughs> I know, dude. Poor Broncos. That was brutal. But talking about the Broncos, so that's funny enough because, I mean, last week we saw the Broncos face the New Orleans Saints without a starting quarterback. This is my question number five for you. Mm -hmm. So we saw the Broncos face the Saints last week without a starting quarterback on their roster. The Broncos played a practice squad wide receiver, Kendall Hill, in that that quarterback, and he threw for 13 yards and two interceptions. Denver scored just three points, but the running game was able to muster up 100 yards on 33 carries in the matchup, saving them from an embarrassment of an even worse offensive performance. But this game got me thinking about the worst offensive performance in NFL history. So sure enough, the Seattle Seahawks are infamously known for the worst offensive performance ever in an NFL game. On November 4th, 1979, the Seattle Seahawks lost to the Los Angeles Rams 24 to nothing. How many yards did the Seahawks have in this game? Negative seven, A, B, zero, C, 13, or D, 20. How many yards did they have? Negative seven, zero, 13, or 20. No shot they were negative. No shot it was a perfect zero. It has to be positive. Is it 13 or 20? That's, I'm going to go with 13 yards. <laughs> Dude, it's a negative. It's negative seven. No way. But you know, it's something around, it's, it's, they count, um, back then they were counting sacks as negative rushing yards. And so they had six sacks for negative 55 yards. The quarterback had like 20 something yards. Um, Jim, Jim Zorn had like mm-hmm. 22 yards or so passing and he had like negative 55 yards on sacks. And so they say that the Seahawks <laughs> had negative seven yards on this game. <laughs> That's stats, incredible. I looked up the stats on this. It was, yeah, it's a it's astounding game. <laughs> Jim Zorn's a good player too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what are we at? Um, are we at two for? We're at the we we only got the one, the one sixteen. I think we're uh, one for one five, right? We'll give you yeah, one. We'll give you one and a half. Thank so you. Far. You were you were so close on a couple of those, man. All right, question number seven though. So Seattle Supersonics were they were they were the city's NBA team founded. Seattle's uh, NBA team founded in 1967. After f- uh, failing to find uh, public funding to construct a new arena in Seattle. The Seahawks unfortunately relocated in 2008 to Oklahoma City following a $45 million settlement with the city of Seattle to pay off the team's existing lease at Key Arena at Seattle Center in advance of their 2010 expiration. The the, the Sonics had some very fun competitive teams throughout their history. On the Last Dance documentary recently last summer, which I really loved, we saw how the Sonics, led by Gary Payne and Sean Kemp, faced the Chicago Bulls in the 1996 NBA Finals. How many games did it take for the Bulls to beat Seattle in that series? A, four, B, five, C, six, or D, seven? How many games did the 96 finals go? 
How many games did the 1996 NBA Finals go? See uh, Sonics versus Chicago Bulls. How many games was that? I'm trying to talk loud enough so my NBA buff roommate can help me out. <laughs> I think he's locked into a book, so I'm on my own. Uh, six games. Oh, you got it. Six. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, that, that documentary really played out that that series really well, The Last Dance on it. I don't know if you saw it, but, man, Gary Payton was owned by Michael Jordan, man. Michael Jordan owned the glove. But, you know, Supersonics had a really fun team, and it's a shame that the NBA doesn't bring it back a team there. I hope they do soon. Make it happen. Come on. We want basketball. Right? And then they have uh, the Raptors playing down in uh, – what, what city is that? In Florida. They're, they're they- down in Florida – are they in Tampa Bay? Tampa Bay. Yeah. yeah. Why the hell would they play in Tampa instead of Seattle? You know, it's like, <laughs> come on. And I think it's probably just cheaper. Um, all right. Question number eight. We're two for seven. Two and a half. Two and a half for seven. Number eight opened. Uh, we were, we've avoided officially the, the lowest score. So we're good there. Excellent. You can take the weight off your shoulders. No, no pressure now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Question number eight. Opened in 1962. This is for, sorry, let me give you a little background on this question. This is, we're going to start diving into some of the history of your your hometown, Seattle. Okay. Okay. So opened in 1962, the Space Needle, located at 400 Broad Street in downtown Seattle, is an awe-inspiring landmark that has become part of the city's identity and history. Which of the following fun facts about the Space Needle is not true? So which of these isn't true about the Space Needle? A, it was built for the 1962 World's Fair. B, the top portion of the Space Needle looks like a UFO, but it was originally intended to be a spacecraft that NASA was experimenting with for sub-atmospheric high-velocity flights. C, renowned moonwalking astronaut Buzz Aldrin visited the Space Needle in 2012 to present the winner of the space race promotion where the grand prize was a suborbital trip into space for the 50th anniversary of the Space Needle. Or D, the committee hoping hoping for extraterrestrial encounters to save the Earth, known as cheese. This is a real committee. The committee hoping for extraterrestrial encounters to save the Earth claims to have plans from the 1962 World's Fair that show the Space Needle was constructed to send transmissions to advanced beings in other solar systems. Let me know if you need me to read any of this. No, I totally believe the last one. That's so conspiracy theory. That one has to be true. (laughs) And I know that it was made for the World's Fair. So it's either B or C. Um, B was that it was a spaceship, uh, a potential design for NASA, which I don't think is true. So I'm going to go B. You got it. You sniffed, you sniffed that one out. I liked your logic with that one. It was B. It was not. It was not a UFO. It looks like a UFO, but it was not intended to be a spacecraft. A lot of interesting history about that landmark. I was looking up. Really, really neat spot. To, I haven't personally visited it myself, but it sounds like a really cool, really cool spot. Have you Have you seen it? Have you been up there yourself? Yeah, it's cool. You go up there and you look around. And you're like, All right, this is this is sweet. It's a, it's a quick, yeah. It's a quick touristy visit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, funny enough, when I was looking up, I think like the first manager of the space, you know, I think he was the manager of the restaurant or something like that. He had fear of heights. He was afraid of heights. No kidding. So, yeah, that was funny. I they almost, have a I new almost, glass floor there now that you can look down. It's a little bit cooler, but it's it's a tourist spot. For sure. Kind of like the Empire State Building in New York, where it's like nobody from New York is actually going to go there. But mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Question number nine. We're three, for, three and a half for eight here. 
Question number nine, Mount Rainier, Washington's highest mountain in the Northwestern Cascade Range, reaches heights of 14,410 feet tall. It became the United States' fifth national park when it, when it was officially named one in 1899, 17 years before the National Park Service was even created. Native American tribes referred to the mountain as Talal, and its original names were Tacoma or Tahoma. In 1792, explorer George Vancouver renamed the mountain after Peter Rainier. Who was Peter Rainier? A, a Civil War abolitionist. B, the first mayor of Seattle. C, an artist known for his portrayals of natural landscapes. Or D, a Royal Navy officer. Oh, boy. B and C don't make sense. I'm thinking A or D. Um, what was A one more time? A Civil War abolitionist or D, a Royal Navy officer. A Civil War abolitionist. <sighs> no way. We weren't around too much during the, the Civil War. There was nobody in the Northwest that would have that influence. It's got to be a Royal Navy officer. <laughs> you got it. You sniffed that one Let's out. Go. I like it. Four and a half. The logic there was sound. Was sound. For sure. Let's go. Peter Rainier, he lived from 1741 to 1808. He was a Royal Navy officer who served during the Seven Years' War, the American Revolutionary War, and the Napoleonic Wars. There have been recent debates about uh, the mountain, about, about, about Mount Rainier. There's been recent debates about it after Alaska's Mount McKinley was rebranded by its original name, Denali. So people have debated whether Rainier should also restore its original name, Tacoma or uh, Tahoma. All right. Question number 10. We're four and a half at a, at a nine here. We have an opportunity to get you to, I think the second highest score we've had here on the vicious minute. Okay. So Seattle is really, really well known for a, an old fire that they had in their city. So the great Seattle fire was a fire that destroyed the entire central business district of this, of Seattle, Washington on June 6, 1889. The fire lasted for less than a day burning through throughout the afternoon and into the night. And during the same summer as the great Spokane fire and the great Ellensburg fire. So not a great, not a great year for the state of Washington, (laughs) Um, but the city of Seattle quickly rebuilt by using brick buildings that sat 20 feet above the original street level and its population swelled during this reconstruction, becoming the largest city in the newly admitted state of Washington. How was the great, uh, the great Seattle fire started? A, an overturned glue pot in a carpentry shop. B, a controlled forest fire that got out of hand. C, a a furnace explosion at a paint shop. Or D, unknown. Let me know if you need me to read it. Reread any of them. Um, Okay. How was it started? So it was not, I don't think it was from an uncontrolled forest fire. That was, or a controlled forest fire. That was B? Yes, that was B. I don't think it's B. I think... What was A? It was a, a spilled an, coffee pot. <laughs> an overturned glue pot in a in a carpentry shop. Carpentry. Okay. Carpentry and then C and D one more time. A furnace explosion at a paint shop or D unknown. I'm gonna I'm going to say it's the carpentry. I'm going to say that the spilled glue pot. Oh, you got it, dude. Let's you go. got it. Yeah. It was an Let's overturned go. glue pot in a carpentry shop. And you know, it's kind of funny that um, this, this 
topic actually was it's it's unfortunate for the for that uh for this paint shop because c was actually a little bit of a twist because some people when the fire initially like started there was a newspaper that's that put out a statement that said uh jim mcgow's paint shop under smith's boot and shoe store at the corner of front and madison streets in what is known as denny block started the fire and it was a, it was a false statement and uh yeah so this paint Fake shop news, bro. got screwed and, and <laughs> sure enough yeah it was like this glue pot that turned over um it burnt up 25 city blocks including the entire business district four of the city's wharves and its railroad terminals um the fire would be called the most destructive fire in the history of seattle despite um, the massive destruction of the property only one person was killed in the blaze a young boy named james Goyne. However, there were fatalities during the cleanup process and over 1 million rodents were killed, which is a good thing, I would say. <laughs> but the, to- <laughs> the total losses were estimated at nearly $20, $20 million, which is about $569 million today. So an expensive accident from the carpentry you still, shop. You can still go tour old Seattle underground. <laughs> really? That's cool. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, you can. Is it like a haunted tour or something? I, I, I kind of, I've never, I've never done it myself, but my roommates have. And yes, I, I think it's <laughs> pretty cool. You see the, uh, you see like a little donut factory and stuff like that. So it's uh, it's a pretty, another pretty good tour spot. Very cool. All right, dude, we got a good score out of you. Five and a half, basically out of 10. We really, you were so close on a couple of those that I almost wanted to give you another half point, but I just needed RG three instead of Cam Newton. And I would have got the extra half point to round out to six to tie the leader. <laughs> yeah. So no, that was fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I had a lot of fun catching up with you. Um, any closing thoughts here for the, for the vicious talk episode 53 podcast here? Yeah, I think, you know, you kind of mentioned just something that you're passionate about um, or, or something that I would be passionate about. And I think it kind of fits into your last question, just talking about all the fires. Um, I'm just, you know, I, re- I really think that we need to make sure and take care of our environment because I, I really think climate change is the biggest threat that we have going on. And, you know, if I would say anything to your listeners, it would just be, you know, take take care of, of the earth, you know, make sure you recycle, make sure you are just consciously aware of what you're doing. I, mean, I don't think we need to go too crazy with it, but I do think that you need to, to make sure people understand that, you know, the earth is uh, an unbelievable planet and you look out at all these other spots that, that you see and we haven't found any life anywhere and you just got to protect what we have and we're destroying it. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of one thing that I always share on my social media personally is just, you know, how beautiful and the earth is and how lucky we are to be here. Um, you could call me a tree hugger, but <laughs> I'm just a huge proponent of, of being aware of what's going on and making sure we can take care of our planet so that we can be here for a long time. You know what I mean? Yeah, dude. What a great, that was one of my favorite topics that someone's talked about here on the vicious men. I couldn't agree more. I love that. Yeah. Protect, protect our earth. We're really lucky to be here. I like it. All right, Andrew. Thanks so much for coming on, buddy. I appreciate it, Benny. I'd love to do it again. Thank you very much. Yeah. We'll have to bring you on when we get to our next update on Robinson Cano or some Seattle Mariners news, or if the Seahawks win the Super Bowl. you know, fingers crossed. I'm in. I'm in. (laughs) All right, man. Good catching up with you. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. All right, so that's a wrap for episode 53 of Vicious Talk with Benny P. Thanks again to Andrew Berry for coming on the podcast and giving a great effort on the Vicious Benny. It really came on strong. Uh, way to go, Andrew, and I appreciate your, your time here for the podcast. Before we go, I want to remind everybody to follow All Things Analysis on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Subscribe on our website to be the first ones to know all about the great things we post and work on at allthingsanalysis.com. Please also subscribe, rate, and review Vicious Talk with Benny P on Spotify, Apple 
Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to Vicious Talk with Benny P. Also, be sure to catch episode 54 coming soon, uh, the episode after this one, that is, for mine and Connor's Week 14 NFL preview our best bets in our daily fantasy selections. I'm on a roll heading into this week. I nailed every one of my picks, every one of my best bets last week, the Browns, the Rams, the Patriots. I also gave some, some picks on the bills, Broncos, lions, jets, all covers. And I already hit an early win on Thursday night with the Rams and an under 44 team total parlay on Thursday night football. So I'm knocking on every piece, every piece of furniture, every piece of wood furniture in my apartment right now, because I'm trying to keep this hot streak going. So listen to episode 54, the next episode of vicious talk with Benny P see if I could keep it going and help you win some money and some fantasy matchups in the process. So thanks again for listening to episode 53 of vicious talk with Benny P. Remember to ask yourself at the end of the day, are you vicious? Yes.